Good morning, King's Chapel, and welcome to worship. As you're settling in this morning, I wanted to take a minute to celebrate our five King's Chapel seniors who graduated last week from high school. Anna Faye Miller, Amelia Ayers, Abigail Reed, Hannah Gray, and Grace Cochlerice. Congratulations, ladies, on your hard work and the future that you guys have in front of you. You guys are total rock stars, and we want you to know that your church family loves you and is proud of you, and that we're pumped to see how God is going to bless the world in and through you as you move into the next season of college life. We have a gift for you. We want to honor you up front when we're finally able to gather together in person. But until then, let me just say congratulations, ladies. You have totally earned it. Well, we have one announcement this morning. We are sending out a survey this week to you through our church-wide email. And we're asking every adult member, both you and your spouse if married, to take this short survey, letting us know just a little bit about how you guys are doing and how we can serve you as a church going forward. It's completely anonymous survey, but as we consider gathering together in some form or fashion in June, we want to know how you're thinking about this transition back and what avenues of connection are best suited for you and your family and collectively for us as a church. So if you wouldn't mind, please take the five minutes this week to open up the link once you've received the email and just fill out this short survey. This will be a huge help for us as we plan for the summer. Well, I'm excited about our time together this morning as we're starting a new series called Summer in the Psalms, a singing theology. You, you may remember that uh, from our time last week when we finished our series on Exodus, that the people of God had seen the glory cloud descend upon the tabernacle in their midst. And they worshiped and they sang and their hearts were poured out to God. They saw the glory of God in display in the, on display in their midst. The problem for us, though, if we're honest, is that sometimes we get too used to God. We, we become really familiar with the vocabulary used to describe God, like he's the God of glory, without really being able to put our minds and our hearts around what that means and how it can lead me to worship well. So that's one of our goals for this series, to use the Psalms to take a closer look at the attributes of God and how understanding the person and the character of God can lead us to become a singing people, a people of joy and peace and hope in the midst of a broken world. So as we gather this morning for worship, let's take a minute to ask God to help us to see his glory this summer in new ways, to understand the attributes of his divine character more clearly and personally, and to be moved to know God, grow together, and reach our world as a result of this series. So let's pray together, King's Chapel. Well, Father, we come, we come before you this morning, and we celebrate our seniors who are graduating uh, from high school. We're thankful for them and the way that they have blessed us for their smiling faces and for their hard work. And we pray, Lord God, that you would use their gifts, their time, their talents, uh, to bless the world around them and that you would use their season of life in college to keep them close to you and to prepare them uh, to bless the world around them after they graduate. So very thankful for our high school students who've just graduated and ask, Lord God, that you would protect them and give them strength as they move into this next season of life. Father, as we prepare our hearts this morning for worship, we ask that you would help us as we transition into a new series uh, to see clearly your attributes for us, your attributes, your character, your divine love for your people. And that as we meditate upon your truth and begin to appropriate that truth into our lives, that we would be a transformed people 
that we would begin to sing and live from the heart. God, that we would be a people who know our God deeply and that that would motivate us to to live life together in risk-taking ways and to move out into our community with the gospel. So bless us this morning as we worship and help us to be a people who worship in spirit and in truth. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Good morning, KCP. The theme of our worship this morning is around God's sovereignty and his kingship. So let's hear the call to worship this morning from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let's worship. Thanksgiving and praise, Thanksgiving and praise, Thanksgiving and praise is to the most high God. Thanksgiving and
morning King's Chapel. We are beginning a new series for the summer this morning. Really excited about spending this summer in the Psalms with you as we're going to be looking at various songs about the attributes of God throughout this summer. We begin this morning with our first psalm that we will look at which is Psalm chapter 2. So turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2 and I'm going to be reading the entirety of that chapter and follow along in your own Bibles as I read out loud. Psalm chapter 2, it says this, Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This ends the reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But may the word of our God stand forever. We are calling this summer series in the Psalms a singing theology, a singing theology. Now the word theology is, has its root word in the Greek language, theo means, or theos means God, and ology means the study of God, or the study of. Therefore, theology means the study of God in its most basic understanding. But theology in general gets a bad rap in many of our minds. We have in mind old medieval questions that seem utterly irrelevant to life, such as how many angels can dance on a pinhead, or did Adam have a belly button? Or we think of people who describe themselves in their social media profiles as a superlapsarian, anti-amoralist, complementarian, partial prejudiced Christians, and we look at that person and we go, I don't think I want to hang out with you. 
And the reality is probably nobody wants to hang out with them, even though I think I might hold all of those positions. But what if theology was not something that seemed crusty and for narrow-minded people or for old ancient questions that seem irrelevant from our life? But what if theology was in song? What if it was beautiful? What if the core of our theology brought to your heart, was brought to your heart through the clarity, the Christmas, and the radiant light of beautiful poetry and song? What if theology was brought upon the realities and met the realities of your life so that theology was experienced and known in the midst of the deepest reaches of your emotions and your soul, a theology formed in the presence of tears and fears and joys and failings? That would be a theology that could change your life. Well, that's what the Psalms in many ways provide for us. A singing theology, a poetic theology. And so what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be looking at the attributes of God. In particular, looking at various psalms that communicate to us some of the various attributes, the character of who our God is. And I specifically want to look in that direction so that this summer our eyes are lifted up. We could look at particularly at the psalms that refer to our anger and our joy and our sorrow. And those are of value and we've done series in the psalms that reflect on those matters. But in particular in a time in which we are struggling and there's many things going on around us. The most important thing to do in a season of unknowns is to look to the one who is known. To look to the one who is objective, who is going nowhere, who is unchangeable. And that is the God who is. And so this summer we're going to be looking at this, the attributes of God, for the salve for our soul to look to who he is, week in and week out. And so we begin this morning, as we already read in Psalm 2, and the highlight, the attribute of this psalm really highlights is what is known as the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is an attribute of what it means for God to be God. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He is never helpless, never frustrated, never at a loss. There are no limits to God's rule. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. Sovereign, that rule, that word, we often refer to kings in that way. It is one who is a supreme ruler and it means that he has the might, the power to control and the right to control. He is the supreme ruler. And in even shorter vernacular, we call a supreme ruler a king. And that is the terminology that we see in Psalm chapter 2. It is about a king. And what we are asking, if we were to ask the question, what is your relationship to a sovereign God, to a God who has the attribute of sovereignty, is in a sense to ask, what is your relationship to the king? What is your relationship to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? In this psalm, we learn about the King, who is, and we learn about our, who He is. And we learn about the nature and the history of our relationship with Him naturally. We learn about His power over us. And all these things lead us back to a question that we come to at the end of the psalm. What is your relationship to the King? Well, we begin with this question, who is the king? And the first point I want us to look at this morning is, what is the identity of the king, the identity of our king? We need to pick up the language if we're going to understand who this king is talking about here. We've got to pick up the language of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes and makes a covenant, a promise with David, saying, David, from your body, there is going to come a king. And the covenant goes on to say that this king's kingdom will be forever. So this king will come from David's line is one who will be a son of God, and God will be his father. And in fact, this psalm perhaps was, the most, uh, was one of the most used psalms to refer to the various kings in the line of David. Because it reflects upon God's covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And it reflects some of the words that are given there and the promises that God makes to the Davidic king. And you, you see this psalm and it's, you, it's called actually a royal psalm. Meaning they would actually read this, this psalm and a couple other psalms from the Psalter over the kings in the line of David as they were being coronated to the throne, brought to the throne over Israel. But the things that we were to read about this king in Psalm chapter 2, they seem too much. They, they would be hyperbolic if they only referred to an earthly king. The language, you might say, as one pastor puts it, of Psalm 2, spills over the bounds of merely talking about an earthly king. As a matter of fact, in verse 2 it says this, The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. Anointed one. That's who these kings of the earth take their stand against. That this king is going to be the anointed one. In Hebrew, the word anointed one, the literal word behind it is Mashiach. It's where we get the word Messiah. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word it translate, this, translate the word Mashiach into is the word Christ. And so here's what I want you to see from the very beginning. We're not going to leave the aha moment and the turn to Jesus till the end. No, the turn to the Jesus comes right here. Who is the king that Psalm 2 is referring to? Well, very clearly, the Old and New Testament are pointing to this one king, the fulfillment of the Davidic line, and it is Jesus himself. The anointed one that the kings of the world are revolting against is Jesus. The anointed one who has power and might over the earth is Jesus. And throughout the New Testament, this psalm is connected to Jesus. At his baptism, for example, the heavens open up and a dove descends upon Jesus. And he is being anointed by the Holy Spirit. And a voice from heaven quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, saying, This is my son. And then we see in Acts chapter 4, the disciples are told by the ruling leaders in Jerusalem not to preach anymore, not to preach the gospel about Jesus anymore. And they threaten the church with persecution in the church. So the church gathers together and they pray. And here's what they pray in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they quote Psalm 2, Why? the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they go on to continue to pray. In the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What are they praying? In Acts chapter 4, they are saying they understand this Psalm 2 to be speaking about the crucifixion of Jesus. 
that the Romans and the Jewish leaders and the people of Israel and the Gentiles of the nations conspire together to take out, to destroy the king, the anointed son. Speaking of Jesus in Psalm 2. And again in Acts 13, in Romans 1, in Hebrews 1, and three times in the book of Revelation, Psalm 2 is referenced to speak about Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension. So, who is the king being referred to in Psalm 2? What is the identity of this king? Well, it is none other than God's son, Jesus Christ himself. Okay. So that is a critical critical issue in helping us understand the details of the psalm. Now as we move through it, we know that Jesus is the king of Psalm 2. And so now we need to move through systematically through this psalm and understand our relationship to this king. And our relationship to this king is is set in very negative terms in verses 1 through 3. And what I want you to see, our second point to see this morning is, we've seen the identity of the king is Jesus, and now I want you to see is the hatred of the king. The hatred of the king. This is verses 1 through 3. Psalm begins by giving us some bad news about the history and the nature of our relationship to this king. You know what your natural relationship is to the sovereignty of God? To the kingship of God? His rule and his reign, his control? This psalm says we hate it. We hate his rule and his reign. Why do, why do we hate? Why do the nations that say plot against this king and rise up against him? Why do, they re- why do we reject Jesus as our king? Well, here's the answer that I think what is seen here in this passage and is, can be easily seen in the world around us and in our own hearts. We see King Jesus as a threat to our personal autonomy. King Jesus is a threat to our personal autonomy. You see, the dominant cultural mindset we are living under today could be summed up by this word autonomy. Auto, self, namas, law, self-law. No one else rules me but me. It is a belief in that we have personal, radical freedom. I do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I don't want anyone else to have a say into my life. And if even anyone questions my life, I will get very angry with them. That is the mindset Of natural man. Verse 3 is teaching us that the basic impulse of every human heart is to long to be self ruled with no word from God about how we should live our life. Understand that there is a difference between being free. We have freedom, God has given us freedom. But there is a difference between being free and being autonomous. Autonomy implies absolute freedom, that there are no, none, never any restrictions on our freedom. But we are, the Bible would say that we are free, but there are limits to our freedom. And the ultimate limit to our freedom is God's sovereignty. You see, the sovereign God and utter autonomous people, these things are incompatible. At some point, someone's rule and reign wins out, mine or God's. And so the dynamic you have before us is that you have a people who naturally want absolute, utter, unhindered, uninfringed upon freedom. And then in walks someone who claims to be their king, claims to have the right to tell us what to do. And what is the response of the human heart to that? It is hatred. It is disgust. We don't, when Jesus comes into this earth and he is rejected, he is not rejected because he is a wonderful savior. 
In the sense that he is kind and merciful and that he heals people? No, Jesus is rejected because he claims to be Lord. Because he claims to be king. And the kings of the earth are upset because when God comes in their life, they're upset because they have one who claims ownership over their life. There's a one who claims to be king over them as kings. We reject Jesus because of his claim of rulership, of ownership over our life. And so we viscerally hate the claim of Christ over our lives. And because of that, we view his proposed rule in our life as bondage. If you look at verse 3, it says this, Let us burst our bonds, the kings of the earth say. That means we want freedom. We view God's rule over us as imprisonment, as enslavement. They inherently view the relationship with God as king as being oppressive. Any limitation upon their freedom is viewed as bondage. The king is keeping them from doing something that they want to do. And this is the ancient lie going all the way back to the garden, isn't it? The evil one came to Adam and Eve, and he questions God's goodness. And he says, God simply just doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to, to keep you from some good things. God wants to keep you down, to keep you from the good life. And if you really want the good life, eat of this tree. He lies to them. But the reality is this, is autonomy is a lie. It falls short. We think being bound to a king makes us prisoners, when in reality, in a world in which you have radical personal autonomy, that actually leads you into true bondage. Just look around our world, for example. We have a world and a culture that loves autonomy, that lauds this more than any other thing. You be you. Life is about discovering who you are and you being who you are, unhindered from what anybody else says about it. And yet, the result of this is we are a people who are paralyzed by the unending choices of who we could be. We ask, what am I supposed to do with my life? What am I made for? I don't know how to carry myself out in this world. I don't know how to find my place in this universe. And in personal autonomy, you cannot look to anyone else authoritatively to answer those questions. It's all on you to figure it out. Good luck. And this has led to unending anxiety for us. So we illustrate it this way. Suppose you're one of those few people who seems to have actually figured out what you're really good at and the things that you, of who you are and how you're designed and the things you would be great at in this, in this world. But now you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go do it and do it well and keep doing it well. And if you fail, whose fault is that? You see, what we have in radical autonomy is endless, unending personal responsibility for success in a world that is utterly broken, and it crushes us. Welcome to anxiety town, and it is one skip and a hop to crazy town. You see, in the end, of I, I, the idolatry of autonomy both crushes us with the weight of responsibility it puts on us, and it also isolates us. In short, it enslaves us. This can be even illustrated in a childish way through one of my children's favorite movies and a movie that has taken the world by storm over the last couple of years, Frozen. And the most famous moment in the, in the Frozen uh, movie is when Elsa runs out of her castle and she runs away from all of her responsibilities and she sings the song, Let It Go. 
It's a song at the top of her lungs. She is singing about her choice to exercise her power to be free, to be who she wants to be, while at the same time, if you notice in the movie, at the same time she is singing this, she is creating and living inside of an ice palace of her own making. She sings, I am free to be me, while ensuring she'll always be enslaved in an isolated palace of her own making. This is our culture in a nutshell. You see, what we need to come to terms with is this, is that freedom is not found in the absence of restrictions, but freedom is found instead in living under the restrictions of a good king, of a good king. Now understand this, the kings of the earth in verse 3 speak of the cords that God has put around them, the bondage that they view that God's rule has over them. That God has wrapped them up as if they are in chains to him. And here's the thing. The Bible does speak about God binding us with cords. But they are far different than the way we view the bonds of God. Let me give you an example of this. In Hosea chapter 11, God is speaking about his relationship with Isaiah. And here's what it says there. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more they were called, though, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols, right? They're pushing against God's bonds and rule in their life. And yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Do you see this? God's courts, we view them as chains. God is actually saying, no, my restrictions upon you are to bring you into a life of healing and love and kindness. All we want to see is a God who restricts us. But God says these are his courts of kindness to keep us from living into things that will destroy us. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. Freedom is is finding life-giving restrictions from a good God. For example, it is restricting to keep fish in water, but it is also life-giving to keep fish in water. A fish can never grow to be what it's meant to be unless it stays in the ocean. And the rule of Jesus is one of kindness and healing. His bonds actually set us free. You see, Jesus' first sermon in his hometown, he opens up to Isaiah, to a passage in Isaiah 61, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that is exactly what Jesus does in his earthly ministry. He is constantly healing others with his kindness, setting people free from physical and spiritual and emotional oppression. And you, one example of this is when he comes across a man named Legion, and Legion is filled with thousands of demons. And he is a man who, the people, he is so unsafe to the people in his village that they actually try to shackle him. And yet he is so strong with this demonic power that he breaks loose their shackles and he runs around with the remnants of the shackles around his ankles and his arms. And yet Jesus sets him free. He is kind and benevolent, a healing ruler. This is not a God who is oppressive. This is a God who comes to give us freedom, releasing us from sin's grip 
and guilt and then leading us into the life that we were created to live. That is the good news of what Jesus, King Jesus, promises us. This is the kind of king that he is. And so I ask you this. Have you, like the kings of the earth, bought into the lie that God's rule is oppressive? You see, when you hear Jesus' teaching perhaps on human sexuality and that your sexual uh, longings and desires are to be fulfilled only in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, do you, and you say, I don't want that. That's too restrictive upon my life. Or you hear Jesus saying, teaching you, honor your father and mother. Give them honor even when they don't necessarily deserve it. And you look at them and you say, well, if God actually knew what my parents were like, he would understand why I speak to them the way I do. Or we hear Jesus' statements about money and we go, oof, that's a bit too far, Jesus. You can't have that area of my life, Jesus. But could it be that God has those restrictions and those calls upon your life because he knows that things like a love of money will destroy you? That running after lover after lover who will never commit themselves to you for a lifetime will destroy you? That rejecting your parents' leadership in your life will make the end to great destruction in your life? Could it be that the bonds of Jesus are the bonds of love and kindness? Well, here's how God responds to the kings of the earth because they reject the king. They reject God's loving kindness and God's loving restrictions and his leadership in their life. And so what we see thirdly is that God responds with his power. We see the power of the king. And how does the king respond to all this rejection and this plotting and this revolution by the kings of the earth? It says he sits in heaven and he wrings his hands in anxiety, wondering, what am I going to do? Is that what it says? No. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He mocks them. He is not threatened by them. He speaks in his wrath. And then he says this in verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, how is the Lord responding to the world's rejection of his rule and his reign. He says to them, you can do whatever you want. You can declare war on me. You can rage and spit and cuss, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my king on Zion as the ruler of the earth, and there is not a thing that you can do about it. The power and the sovereignty of God. God says your rebellion is powerless against, well, reality. You can try to reject God. You can run at, against him. You can try to, to defeat him. You can try to push away from his kingship and his rulership. But it will not stop God from taking the throne in this world. You see, human freedom can never restrict the sovereignty of God. That is what sovereignty is all about. If God's sovereignty is restricted by man's absolute freedom, then God is not sovereign. Man is sovereign. If God is free and I am free, we must understand that God and his sovereignty is more free than I am. If my freedom runs up against God's freedom, I lose. His freedom restricts mine. My freedom does not restrict his because he is the king and there's nothing that I can do to stop him from being the king in this world. In fact, if you looked at the scriptures... At this king's kingdom, it is the only one that lasts. For example, in Isaiah 40, and the good news that the prophet there is giving to Isaiah is that the kings of the earth are established by God, but they're also uprooted by God. And in fact, God describes them there like withering grass. 
God's kingdom may always be opposed, but it will never be overcome. Look at Jesus. When he comes into this life, into this world, the kings, from the very moment he is born, Herod tries to destroy him. The kings and the rulers and the principalities of this world seek to destroy him. But he is raised up, even through the cross. He is raised up in such a way that and one day every knee shall bow and shall declare him and say that he is Lord of lords. He is above every rule and power and authority and he will make his enemies his footstool. And we see at the end of all things in Revelation 11, it says this, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. It is an unstoppable kingdom. His king, this king, and his kingdom will advance. He will build his church and as he says in Matthew, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's so many examples of this. Acts, the whole book of Acts could be a description of this. There's over and over again, it will talk about series of persecution that the church endures and even infighting in the church, things external and internal to the church, sickness and suffering, and yet at the, each section of Acts it says the word of God multiplied and advanced because nothing can stop God's kingdom. Understand where history is leading. It is leading to the ultimate fulfillment of the rule and reign of King Jesus over all things. And this is how Revelation 19 speaks of it. Bear with me as I read this longer text. Revelation 19 describes that there is a rider on a white horse and he is tatted up and ready for war. We pick up in verse 11, it says this, Then I saw the heavens open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes like are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, linen white and pure, were following him. On white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Sounds like Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the inevitable direction of all of history. And this is the king who doesn't matter whether you rebel and reject him. He is unstoppable. He will have his throne. And he will reign forever and ever. This is where things are going. And so this leads us back to our question. What is your relationship to this king? What is your relationship to this king? I want you to see the fourth thing I want us to see this morning is the invitation of the king. You see, there is such grace in the psalm. It ends in verses 10 through 12. The king is showing up and he has a warning. And he says, hey, kings of the earth, wise up. Don't reject this king. You can either serve and rejoice and kiss the king and you'll feel to find refuge in him and you'll be blessed or you won't serve. You won't rejoice and you won't kiss the king and the result will be you perish. It's a warning. It's a warning, but it's also a gracious and merciful invitation that the king doesn't show up and say, that's it, I'm destroying you. Now he shows up and says, I can destroy you. Now will you submit? Will you come and take refuge in me? It's an invitation to leave the camp of the enemies of God and instead join the congregation of the king. And here's the invitation of Psalm 10, verse 2. Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see the invitation there? You don't have to know him in his wrath. You can instead know him as your refuge. Here's what one pastor said. It's this. It says what it's saying here is that there is no refuge from the power of this king. He is too great. There is only refuge in the king. There is no in-between. There is no refuge from the king, only refuge in the mercy of the king. And so you throw yourself. You need the king. Throw yourself at his mercy. So take refuge in him. Take refuge in King Jesus. The scripture says that it, 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 all men, it is appointed for all men, Hebrews 9 says, that we will die and then we will be judged. All of us will come under judgment. And when you appear before God one day, the only place in which you will find yourself, you can find hiding from the wrath of God, is under the refuge of King Jesus. You cannot take refuge from him, but you take refuge in him. He is the only one who provides forgiveness of sins. And there is blessing in taking refuge in Jesus. And so let me ask you this. Do you feel the weight of your rejection? Well, take refuge in the one who forgives rejectors. Do you feel the need for forgiveness? It is found in the king who came to give his life for those who had sinned against him. Do you need hope for this life and for eternity? It is found in a king who wins the victory that no matter what suffering you're engaging in in this world, no matter how what trouble, that the end of history is the rule and reign of a perfect king who will bring perfect peace and justice and goodness upon this earth. And do you feel weak and exposed and vulnerable? Take refuge in this king who is powerful. Can you imagine coming up under the arms of this king, this description as he's described in Revelation 19, and you're under his protection? And so let me ask you this, though. What is the act of taking refuge? Well, there's something that precedes it. Refuge begins with submission. That if you have lived your life, or you look at your life and you go, listen, in general, maybe I've submitted my life, but there are areas of my life, my finances, my relationship with my parents, my willingness or unwillingness to forgive someone who's hurt me, my, my view of how I live my life out in my sexuality, all these things, have I brought them all under the, to submit to King Jesus? There is this line, and it seems strange. There it says, kiss the son is the command in, these, in this passage. And really what is being communicated here is an expression of submission from the ancient Near Eastern culture. That when you would come to a king, you would bow at his feet and you would kiss him as an act of saying, you are my delight and I submit my life to you. A king will talk about other kings and he will say, the kings of such and such place came and kissed my feet. This is what we are called to do. The end of the story of what submission may look like. It's from a far off culture quite a long time ago in the 20th century, but it's from a story from a missionary named Dick McClellan who was a missionary in Ethiopia. He was an Australian man. And one day he was meeting with a fellow named Anissa and another man named uh, Gibri. And he, in the, it's the process of actually putting, re-putting together his, uh, his camp, his house where he was trying to do ministry out of that had been destroyed by a storm. These two men, Anissa and Gebri, came to him and they said, we have heard that there's one who's here who can make us new men. Are you Jesus? Are you that man? 
McClellan looked at them and scratched his head and said, oh my goodness, I've got a lot to do to teach them. And along with another Ethiopian missionary, he and this other missionary would share the gospel to Onisa and Gebri. In fact, they shared the gospel and the whole story of the Bible over the course of two to three days. And after these three days of sharing the Bible and the story of the scriptures to them, these two men bowed the knee to King Jesus. They believe and they put their faith and trust in Christ. And so what they did in front of a group of people, there in in a public way, they raised their right hand, almost like saying a pledge of allegiance. But in this case, they renounced their allegiance to Satan and evil practices and all their sins. But then after announcing their allegiance to Satan and to this sinful life, they then raised two hands and they said this, Having renounced Satan and believing in my heart that Jesus is the Son of God who died for me, I take him as my Savior with two hands. That is what it is to kiss the Son. Taking him fully. Embracing him. Clinging to him. All my life is bound up in you. I submit all my life to you and I cling to you and your rule and your reign only in my life. And my goodness, when you submit to God in that way, he is a refuge, he is a joy, and he gives your life peace. So King Chapel, I hope you bow the knee to King Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Jesus, about how to have a relationship with him, I would love to talk to you. You can email me, you can call the church office at any point. And so, may you bow the knee to King Jesus in all areas of your life. Where is that for you? Where are those areas of your life where perhaps you look around and you say, this is an area of my life where I'm still trying to rule and reign. Well, the good news is there's the invitation of Jesus. Come to him, fall at his feet, and take hold of him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you so that you might kiss his face. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.